the way to God has been opened up to us. His ear is always open to hear us. His arms are always open to welcome us. The theme of the book of Colossians we have identified is the gospel hope of Christ in you. That's what makes our prayers possible. That's what makes our admittance into God's presence possible. Christ in you. Our gospel hope. Take your Bibles, turn along with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. What is the nature of this gospel hope? And what is Christ's role in securing it? Our text this morning from Colossians has the answers. As we're going to see this morning, gospel hope is the settled certainty that God's good news in Jesus is true. That we can be forgiven of our sins, that we can receive eternal life, that we can know for certain that we are saved and that heaven will be our eternal home. And that all of this is received simply by faith. This is our gospel hope. This is the truth of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's look together at Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, as we continue our study in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. The Apostle Paul continues to write, and he says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would add your blessing. We have read your word and we want to understand it well this morning. We want to be shaped by it. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We want to remember our own story, our own gospel story of what you have done for us, of how far we have come, how distant our past is, and how glorious our future will be. Remind us this morning from your word, change us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The gospel hope of Christ in you. How has this come to be? Well, Paul presents here the essence of our gospel hope in this passage by sharing four components of our common gospel story. If you're a Christian here this morning, these verses are your verses. They're the story of God's grace to you. Our gospel hope shares four things in common. 
in these verses. First of all, we see that our gospel hope shares a common backstory. Verse 21. We have a common backstory. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is your backstory. This is your history. This is your spiritual background. Backstories are all the rage these days, aren't they? Hollywood will take a popular story like Star Wars and spin off seemingly endless series of backstories for many of the main characters. Backstories are helpful, though. They're helpful in setting context, right? Context for, for the characters. It helps us understand them better, where they came from and how they came to be who they are. This is true for us as well, spiritually speaking. We all have a common backstory. Here it is in verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. This is where we've come from. This is our backstory. As we've seen in previous weeks, from verses 15 through 20, Paul uses this ancient poem, a a well-known hymn to Christ, altering it here and there for his own purposes, but quoting from it extensively. He's presented here in verses 15 through 20, Christ using some of the loftiest descriptions in all the New Testament. As you read verses 15 through 20, we see that Christ is the image of the invisible God with the position of first place, being first in authority over all creation. And that's because he's the creator of all things, verse 16. All things, even including the unseen world of angels, both elect and evil angels, He has authority over all of them because all things were created through him and they were created for him. He had no beginning. He existed before all things and in Christ all things hold together and are sustained by him. He's also head over the new creation, the church, the body. He's the leader. He's the source of wisdom and life. He's the firstborn from the dead, the first to rise again from the dead, never to die again. The first of others to follow him in resurrection so that he will come to have the first place in everything. This is Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus Christ so that he is truly God and truly man. Verse 19. As the God-man, God was reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ, making peace through the blood of Jesus' cross. Now up to this point, Paul's been speaking in the third person. But now he makes it personal. By transitioning... His language to the second person. You. You. No longer is Paul just dealing at the level of theological ideas and concepts. He now makes all that he has said intimate 
intimately applicable to our lives. He says, although you were formerly alienated, he has now reconciled you in order to present you before him. If indeed you continue, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. This is the application of verses 15 through 20. And the glorious reality of the preeminence of Christ. It, it has, this truth has come to us and it has changed us. It's changed who we are. It's changed our future. Let us never forget that the Bible is a very personal book. The Bible is a very applicable book. It has been given to us from God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119, 105. The Bible is not an impersonal book dealing in irrelevant abstractions, useless theology that has no real bearing on life. Far from it. The Bible is not a book that speaks about the sweet by and by while neglecting the nitty-gritty here and now. So Paul transitions in verse 21 from the impersonal third-person theological realities of the preeminence of Christ to the second-person practical and very personal applications of the preeminence of Christ. He begins this personal application by reminding us of our former condition. We Christians were all formally alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. This is our common past, and we need to own it. We need to remember it. We need to remember where we've come from, how hopeless our condition was. This is our common past, our common backstory. In fact, it's the backstory of all humanity. It's the backstory of every son and daughter of Adam and Eve. This describes our common spiritual existence outside of Christ. We were alienated, we were on the outside. We were strangers and foreigners to God and His promises. We were estranged from God, separated from Him. The Bible describes in other places that the unbeliever is the enemy of God. Romans 5.10 It says that the unbeliever is a hater of God. Romans 1.30 Paul describes our unbelieving life this way in Titus 3.3. 3. We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient and deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and in envy, hateful and hating one another. That's where we were. That was our spiritual condition outside of Christ. Not only were we alienated from God, but we were also hostile in mind. We weren't just ignorant of the truth. We were hostile to the truth. 
When it comes to God, we weren't neutral to the things of God. No, we were hostile in mind. Our minds, our mindset, our outlook, our way of viewing things was hostile to God, hostile to his truth, and hostile to the gospel. Listen to how Paul describes this position of hostility toward God in Romans 8. Romans 8, 7 and 8. He says, The mind set on the flesh, that is the unbeliever's mind, is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. You weren't just lacking certain key bits of information. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You were not pleasing to God. You could not please God. You didn't want to please God. Such was our former spiritual condition. So we were once alienated and hostile in mind, but then Paul says we were also engaged in evil deeds. Our alienation from the life of God and our hostile mindset toward God expressed itself in evil deeds. Jesus said that evil deeds always flow out of an evil heart. Mark 7, 21, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders and adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. See, our evil deeds were not a result of some inequity in the world around us. It wasn't a result of the influences of bad people around us. It was a result of the influence of our evil heart, of our hostility toward God, of our alienation from Him. And from that flowed an unending sea of evil deeds. Paul shares his own list of some of the evil deeds that characterize the life of the unbelieving. Listen to this from Galatians 5.19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God and that's right where we were alienated from the life of God hostile in mind toward God engaging in evil deeds that were a constant offense to a holy God And as a result of this spiritual condition of alienation from God and hostility toward God, we engaged in evil deeds. 
But you may look back on your life and say, well, see, the funny thing is I don't remember all of that. I don't, I don't think I, I ever really hated God. I mean, really? Yeah. Many of you, your story may be like mine. You came to know Christ and trust in Jesus at an early age. It's difficult enough for you to remember that moment, much less all that preceded it. See, I don't think I hated God. I certainly didn't practice these things. Well, while these things may or may not have been readily apparent in your life, or even in your thinking, rest assured, they were the fundamental position and condition of your heart. And given enough time and opportunity, they would have expressed themselves in ways that would make you gasp now. The reality is that the seed of every sin lies within the heart of sinful man. And given time and attention and watering, it will be brought to its bitter fruit. Romans 3.10 says this. Listen, if you don't believe this about yourself, we got to start over. Right? Right? If you don't believe this is where you came from, if you don't believe this is your backstory, then we've got a problem. Romans 3.10, listen to what it says. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. You say, well, yeah, but I'm sure I'm an exception to that. (laughs) No, this is our story. This, This is our origin story. This is where we come from. These are our roots. And it's not a pretty picture. But all of this makes what we see next all the more extraordinary. That's why the backstory matters. We are a mess outside of Christ. Our lives were spiritual wrecks. Our hearts were far from God. Our minds were opposed to God. Our lives were engaged in that which is abhorrent to God. But thankfully, that is not the end of the story. It's just the backstory. With God, there's always more to the story. For in spite of our hostility toward God and our hatred of Him, He graciously broke through our stubborn rebellion to bring us to Himself, to pull us in with His cords of love and rescue us. But... God. It's the greatest hinge in all of human history. That despite our sinfulness, despite our waywardness, despite our hostility and enmity with God, He stepped into the gap. 
and did for us what we would never walk across the street to do for him. This is the great story of God's redemption. But God, in spite of our terminal spiritual condition of sin and rebellion, God has now reconciled us to himself. It wasn't that we cleaned ourselves up and made ourselves more presentable to God. It wasn't that we met halfway. You know, God kind of came a few steps toward us and we, we took a few moral steps toward him. That's not the gospel. No, it was that in the thick of our rebellion, God acted toward us in mercy and grace to save us. This is the emphasis Paul makes in Romans 5. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, you and I were helpless. We didn't just need a push in the right direction. We needed rescue. At the right time, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Here again, Paul is rehearsing our spiritual background, our spiritual backstory. We were indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. We were dead, lifeless. We were corpses in the midst of our sin and God brought us to glorious life in Him. This is our common spiritual backstory. This is where we all came from. We were all sinners, alienated from God, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds. And we were headed for destruction. But thankfully that is not the end of our story. That brings us to the second part of our story, and that is our gospel hope is centered upon the reconciling work of God in Christ. Verse 22. Despite this former spiritual condition of alienation and hostility toward God, God has taken the initiative and He has reconciled us to Himself. God is the one doing the reconciling here. And Christ is the means he used to bring about this reconciliation. Look at verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. As Christians, we have now gone from being alienated to being brought near. We've gone from being at war with God to being at peace with Him perpetually and eternally. We've gone from being far from God to being in the beloved. We've gone from being the enemies of God to being the friends of God and even the children of God and even the heirs of God's promises and even co-heirs with Jesus Christ Himself. 
But how was this incredibly gracious act of reconciliation made possible and accomplished? Well, God brought it about, brought about this reconciliation through Jesus Christ's fleshly body through death. That's what Paul says. Christ, the Christ of verses 15 through 20, the Son of God, the Eternal One who is the image of the invisible God, had to be made like us. He had to add humanity to His divine nature in order to serve as a sinless substitute for sinful mankind. The eternal Son of God had to take on human flesh and become like one of us. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Speaking of Jesus, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The author of Hebrews explains it this way. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus, through his own fleshly humanity, submitted himself to death even death on a cross, in order that through His death we might be reconciled to God. So our reconciliation came through Jesus' incarnation, His becoming flesh, His becoming like one of us, and through His death, tasting death, experiencing death, undergoing death, for others. So how did this reconciliation through the incarnation and death really work? Well, as a man, Jesus throughout his lifetime fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the law of God. Jesus obeyed every commandment of the law of God to a T, at the heart level, with the right attitude and intention, always and only. He always did what was pleasing to the Father. So clear was this about Jesus' life that at both the beginning of his public ministry and at the end of it, God the Father would speak publicly from heaven and say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God was well pleased with the life and the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus never sinned. Jesus is the only perfectly righteous human being who's ever lived. And as the only perfectly righteous human being, Jesus could then go to the cross and die for sins that were not his own. He could die for the sins of others. 
taking our guilt upon himself, receiving in his own body God's just judgment against our sin, experiencing God's just wrath and dying in our place. So what was it that was happening at the cross in Jesus' flesh? God was about the business of reconciling us to himself by crediting our sin to Jesus and crediting Jesus' righteous life to us. On the cross, God was treating Jesus as if he had lived your life and my life. And now, by faith, God treats us as if we had lived the life Jesus lived. A life of perfect and absolute righteousness. So that God now looks at us and says, This is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see the exchange that's taking place there? God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Jesus, we have achieved the status of righteous with God. And that brings us to our next point this morning. The next development in this glorious story of the gospel. Our gospel hope has a current status. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have a current spiritual status before God. And it is Glorious. It is better than you can imagine. It's better than you think. It's better than we live. Verse 22b. Second half of verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That is our current status. God's work of reconciliation through Christ's fleshly body, through death, had a specific goal in mind, and that was to make us right with God. To make us right before God. In order to present us before God as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. As Christians who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, this is our present status before God. Holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Do you believe that? Can you believe that? That's not future. That's not someday, maybe sometime. It'll all work out. No, it's right now. Your present standing as a Christian before God in God's eyes is holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Now you could look at my life this week and you'd say, yeah, I'm not buying it. 
But what he's talking about here is our standing before God. It is our, our, our legal position, if you will. It's our current status, the status of our relationship with God right now, right at present, is holy, blameless, beyond reproach. We're not waiting for something better when it comes to our fundamental relationship with God. Now, are we waiting for the fullness of that to be realized in the way we live and the way we think and the way we act toward one another? Yes. But none of that changes our fundamental status before God right now. And nothing will ever change that. Nothing. Because we are holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This means God is no longer angry with us. God doesn't look at at you with a scowl. Do you believe that, Christian? Mm, No, no. He's pretty holy. Yeah, he is. By the way, there is no pretty holy, right? It's an absolute condition, holiness. You either are or you aren't holy. The moment you add one sin to it, you cease to be holy. But that is our position. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus satisfied God's wrath. In Jesus, all the righteousness that Jesus accomplished through his life has been credited to us. The books have been swapped. He got all our debts. We got all of his assets. God is no longer angry with us. He is no longer our enemy. His wrath is no longer hanging over our heads. We are now declared to be holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Christian, do you believe it? Now, these three terms, holy, blameless, beyond reproach, are basically synonymous. And they are terms which are used in the context of the Old Testament temple to those things that had been approved by meeting God's righteous standard and had been sanctified and set apart for divine use. Talking about a spotless lamb, right? That's the idea here. Without blemish. That is our status now. We've been approved and declared to have met God's righteous standard of holiness and we've been set apart for His divine use. What a change of circumstances. What a spiritual windfall that has come our way. What a blessed reversal of fortunes that is ours in Jesus Christ. We have gone from being alienated and hostile and to being accepted and declared holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. All without us, even so much as lifting a finger. You didn't earn any of it. You didn't deserve any of it. 
After all, you were the enemy of God. You were alienated. You were hostile in your mind. You didn't want what God was offering. What a change. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not waiting for peace with God. We're not hoping for it. We have it. It is our present possession. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. You ever going to answer for your sins? Christian, are you ever going to answer for your sins? No. Jesus is the answer for your sins. What a glorious gospel. Does it seem too good to be true? It does seem too good to be true. Only God could orchestrate this. Only God could come up with this. Only God could make it happen. Christian friends, do you realize the tremendous blessing of your present spiritual status? Reconciled. You and your God, your creator, are reconciled. And no one and nothing can come between that. Holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Like the sound of that? It's yours in Christ. A status secured for us solely through Christ's righteousness and death as a substitute. Well, that brings us to the fourth and final part of our story, our gospel story. And that is that there's a catch. You say, see, I knew it. There's always a catch. Well, it's not really a catch. It's a condition. Our gospel hope has a necessary condition. That is in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The gospel hope which has at its heart the reconciliation of sinners to God through the death of Christ in the flesh on the cross has a condition. And the condition is faith. Faith. Believe. Trust. Faith is simply how we receive God's gift of reconciliation through Jesus Christ. It's not a work. It's the gift of God itself, right? Faith is the gift of God. He gives us the faith. And, and we simply respond and believe. 
Through faith, we believe and trust in God's promises and provision through Jesus. God says it. He promises it. We read it. We hear of it. And we respond in faith. And we say, yes, I believe on Jesus as my Savior. Yes, I believe His death and burial and resurrection was sufficient to pay the price for my sins. Yes, I believe that through Jesus I can be credited as righteous in the sight of God. And all my sins forgiven. Because Jesus paid it all. Through faith we trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And we abandon all hope of trusting in anything else as a means of achieving peace with God. That's faith. But this faith that we place in Christ is a faith because it's a gift from God. And God doesn't... doesn't Pull back his gifts. God doesn't give it and then take it back. Because faith is a gift of God, faith perseveres. Faith endures. For faith to be true saving faith, it must be a faith that endures. It keeps going. Doesn't mean it's a perfect faith. Anybody in here got a perfect faith? No one? Me either. None of us have a perfect faith. We are, we are but dust. We are, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's my constant prayer. Lord, I got a little bit of faith, and you said if I had a little bit of faith, I could move a mountain. I got a mustard seed faith. But the issue isn't, The quality of our faith or the quantity of our faith, the issue is the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is sufficient and even a modicum of faith is enough to receive all of God's promises to us in Jesus Christ. But even that modicum of faith has to be present. It has to remain It has to endure. You see, if we profess faith in Jesus and then later on begin thinking, you know, something else is better than Jesus or something else is equally deserving of our faith, then we haven't really understood the gospel message and our profession of faith wasn't Truly reflective of a genuine possession of faith. Something went wrong. Something was wrong in our understanding. See, there have always been those who have professed faith at some time in their life. But then they seem to wander off. You know them. There may be an image in your mind of someone now that that you, you, you thought they walked in sweet fellowship with the Lord and with other Christians and then they just turned their back on it all. The Apostle John laments this reality in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. It's a curious thing. 
Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also what? Deny us. You can't deny the preeminence and sufficiency of Jesus Christ and still expect the blessings and benefits that He provides through His fleshly death on the cross. That's it. So what is this condition? As you began, so continue. What you have begun in faith, you continue by faith. What was begun with a mustard seed of faith, imperfect and small though it was, continue. Now, Paul uses here the first-class conditional clause. Let me tell you what that means. It means that Paul believes it to be true of these people. He's not saying, if indeed you continue in the faith, and I know you're probably not going to do that. No, he's saying, if indeed you continue in the faith, and I'm sure that you will. I'm confident that you will. I believe the condition is true about you. It's nevertheless a warning that those who stray from their profession of faith by believing in anything other than Jesus alone for salvation have serious reason for concern for their soul. In the words of Journey, Paul is saying, don't stop believing. If that helps fix that in your mind, then great. None of the rest of the song applies. (laughs) The current need, as Paul sees it, is for the Colossian believers to continue. To continue in the faith. Keep going. Don't stop now. Don't look to the right. Don't look to the left. Don't look at these flashy things. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. He's your hope. He's the object of your faith. Continue in the faith, a faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. These first two terms that Paul used here are are building terms, construction terms. Their, Their faith is to be firmly established like foundation stones, carefully laid and once laid properly, they do not move. They're to be steadfast, unmoving, immovable in their faith. This firmness and steadfastness in their face will be the result of of, that they don't move away from the hope of the gospel that they have heard. They will not be moved. They'll not be moved away from Christ to something else, to angels or to ascetic practices or to some other self-discipline, believing that we can somehow earn our way Or meet God in the middle. The temptation has always been to view the gospel as merely initiatory. It's the truth we start with, yes, but then quickly we get on to more important and complex matters. But that won't do. The gospel is not only what initially brings us into peace with God, but it is also the truth that keeps us at peace with God. 
This same gospel, the truth of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the truth that Paul says has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Statement of slight hyperbole, but also a statement that was true in the time of Paul as it, the gospel had gone forth to the, much of the known world at that time, largely through the apostle Paul, much through his own travels. Even though the gospel is still today largely unknown to many people, tragically. Believe that? This message, the message we've heard today, the message that's brought us so much comfort and peace and joy and hope is completely unknown to vast swaths of the globe. Paul says that of this gospel, I was made a minister, a servant to correct that deficiency, to get the message out, to share it with all who will hear it, that they don't have to live the rest of their lives in the backstory, in alienation and hostility toward God, engaged in evil deeds that are a constant affront to Him. No, instead, they can be reconciled to God and be declared holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's the hope of the gospel. This is our gospel hope. That while we were once alienated from God, hostile in mind toward Him, yet He has now reconciled us to Himself through Jesus' death in order to present us before Him as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray together. Lord, forgive us for getting over the gospel. For saying, yeah, I've heard this before. Yeah, but how's this going to help me this week? Lord, show us how practical this is for us. How we are now able to live each day in the glorious promise that we are accepted by God. Holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. That it might translate into daily thanksgiving and joyful praise and purposeful living. Jesus, thank you for taking on flesh, for entering into space and time, for doing so as a servant, a slave of all, making yourself obedient to the Father, Obedient unto death, obedient even unto a death on the cross. You died the death we deserve. You bore the wrath intended for us. And we are free through faith in you. Thank you, Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.